Hey crew, before we get started today, as I'm sure you've already heard, Aaron Eisenberg passed away early this week. He was the actor behind Nog on DS9. He'd also played a few other roles in the Star Trek universe. Aaron had struggled with some health issues in his life, but I don't think anybody expected this. It was very sudden, and our hearts go out to Melissa, his wife, and their families as they're dealing with this loss. On next week's show, we're going to celebrate Aaron's life and talk more about his time on Trek. But for now, if you want to support Melissa with some of the funeral and medical expenses, you can do that. They have a GoFundMe set up currently. I'll have a link in the show notes where you can find it or just Google Aaron Eisenberg GoFundMe and it comes right up. Rest in peace, Aaron. This year and every year, September 23rd is Bi-Visibility Day, celebrating the bisexual community and raising awareness of biphobia and bi erasure. And there's gatherings and celebrations all around this week. You can go to bivisibilityday.com to see if there's any near you or uh, organize one yourself and send me an invite. We've got Eleanor Tremere back on the show today to talk about Rejoined, an episode of DS9 held up for its portrayal of a same-sex relationship and one that has a special place in the hearts of many LGBTQ fans. Just to note, there's a shift in audio quality near the end of the episode due to some technical difficulties with the recording equipment, but we got it figured out, and I think it turned out okay. Hope you enjoy the show. We'll see you next week, and with that, let's get underway. It's worked so far, but we're not out yet. I want to know what you're thinking. There are some things you can't hide. I want to know what you're feeling. Tell me what's on your mind. Hailing Frequencies Open, and welcome to Enterprising Individuals, the Star Trek discussion podcast that boldly goes into excruciating detail about the series, characters, and stories of the Star Trek universe. I'm your host, Aaron Coker, a.k.a. Caliban, and I'm surprised that close-up magic isn't more popular with Bajoran Vedics. Next time you're checking someone's paw, pull a quarter out of there, give them a thrill. I'm joined once again on this episode by Eleanor Tremere. Eleanor is an editor and writer whose work has been featured on io9, Babel Magazine, and Geek and Sundry, writing on topics of representation, gender, and sexuality in sci-fi and genre entertainment. Eleanor, welcome back to the show. Hi, thanks. It's great to be back. It's great to have you back. Permission to come aboard granted. Today we'll be talking about Rejoined, the fifth episode of the fourth season of Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Out of all the popular sci-fi properties of the last half century, Star Trek has a reputation as the most socially conscious. And it's a reputation that is arguably well-earned. It was premised around a future where humanity had managed to heal its societal divisions and apply its liberal ideals to its exploration of the galaxy. The original series debuted during an era of intense American social upheaval and racial tension, yet it featured a cast of characters and actors of diverse racial backgrounds, and the show's plots were regularly centered around the themes of tolerance and social justice. As the Trek franchise moved into the 21st century, its commitment to its convictions deepened, and the various Trek sequel series would provide commentary and criticism on many real-world events and societal injustices. However, one specific injustice, discrimination against LGBTQ people, would go mostly unaddressed for the life of the franchise, and gay characters played by gay actors would be entirely absent until the debut of Star Trek Discovery in 2017. But we'll talk about that a little later in the show. First of all, let's take a little detour from Star Trek for a little bit, Eleanor. Um, You wrote a series of articles for Babel Magazine about the history of Polari and the culture behind it. Can you give us a quick brief on what Polari is? 
Uh, yeah, I did. It was a real um, passion project, that one. It took me a good few months. Polari is fascinating. It's a, it's a language, a sort of slang language that was used uh, by gay men between the 1930s and the 1970s in the UK. Um, it was born out of this glorious mishmash of sub- subculture slangs, including um, so Yiddish you might be familiar with. Paliari was the language of carnival folk. Uh, lingua franca, Italian, uh, thieves cant, all of these uh, sort of subculture dialects coming together and uh, from that came Polari, uh, which is uh, just a really, really fun social language of gossip and of, of it was, there are words to do with uh, with sex, to do with uh, appearance, to do with running from the cops and, and letting your friends know where a Bobby might be around the corner. And um, it was so sort of prolific that a lot of British slang words like naff actually um, come from, have their origins in Polari. So uh, we have a lot to thank it for, I think. That's interesting. Naff is not a word that we use much over here in the States, <laughs> no. but I, I'm familiar with it. Are there any other uh, like specific terms that came from a Polari that are used generally today? Slap, I think, is a really fun one. So slap is uh, is a term that we use in the UK to mean makeup. It actually originates in theater <laughs> slang okay. um, and was used a lot in, in Polari, like putting putting the slap on before you before you go out. Oh, okay. Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. Got to get my slap on. Yeah. Uh, what, did I read correctly that uh, Punch and Judy puppets uh, converse in Polari sometimes? Uh, possibly. Um, maybe might be closer to Paliari, which is the carnival slang that Polari was born oh, out sure, of. Oh, sure, sure. Okay. So a lot, a lot of words um, intermingle between those languages. Um, so I think it would be less likely to, to be used in Punch and Judy, but it was used a lot on uh, Round the Horn, which is a very popular radio show um, in the 70s. There was a fantastic uh, series of sketches with uh, Kenneth Williams and uh, I actually forget his fellow actor's name. Um, and they were they were this these two these two men who were very clearly very clearly gay embarking on a series of um, different professional exploits and their 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 dialogue was absolutely laden with Polari innuendo and jokes and even though the audience was primarily straight. Um, and wouldn't have had access to this like secret coded language the jokes still land they're still really sure. really funny and okay. um, i think that's one of the ways that's probably the the biggest like entertainment factor in in polari that made sure. it popular that's fascinating well i learned a new word uh reading some of these articles cryptolect mm-hmm. which is a word that i yeah. uh i was able to, to put the meaning together but i never heard that word before uh if you want to read uh, listeners uh these articles i can put links to the show notes on Babel magazine and i Definitely think that you should check them out. I wanted to ask you as well, it's been a month or so now since San Diego Comic-Con, but what did you think of some of the announcements uh, and some of the sneak peeks that we saw of the uh, new Star Trek shows? I may have cried at the Picard trailer. <laughs> yes, <of laughs> Oh course. my goodness. I thought the tone for that was absolutely fantastic, actually. I, uh, I was surprised. I wasn't sure what to think. I thought maybe they were doing a whole, like, Logan thing to make it really dark. <laughs> sure. Uh, but it felt very, actually, kind of... In, in keeping with Next Generation, but still very much its own thing. I liked getting little glimpses of the Federation, that bit in the future, and it seems to have a compelling story, so I really loved. Um, I liked the little glimpse we got at Lower Decks as well. I think the concept for that is, is a lot of fun, so I can't wait to see that one. Is there anything specific that you are looking for from a Picard sequel series? I mean, you talked about the connections to TNG, but mm. it seems to be itself a sequel to all of Trek from that period because, of course, we've got Seven of Nine, and I'm expecting probably some more elements. Is there something that you specifically mm. want to see? 
Well, I mean, I'm really fascinated with the uh, the TNG and DS9 era of Star Trek. It's it's my favorite for the kind of um, socio-political machinations. So I'm yeah. I'm really looking forward to anything that will kind of forward that. It's difficult because one of the things I'd really like to see moving, you know, in in that era is how the Federation deals with Section 31. But I know they're dealing with that in Discovery in the Section 31 show. And they probably don't want to, you know, spoil that in any way. So that means they can't play with it, which is unfortunate. But um, I think we're probably going to see a lot of Borg stuff, which is going to be interesting um, and how they're going to do that dealing with the fact that the audience may not have seen all of Voyager. I haven't seen all of Voyager, so I'm hoping okay. I won't have to in order to understand Picard. <laughs> right, right. But um, I just want to see where the Federation's at. I want to see, um, has the sun set on the Federation? Is it still in its heyday? You know, how is Bajor prospering without the Federation? Are other are planets within the Federation splintering off, or is it only expanding? I think there's a lot to deal with there. But um, I, I'm hoping they don't go too gritty with Picard I, I I love him as a character and there's um, a tendency with some of the writing some of the movies certainly just went really hard in like giving him a lot of oh, angst yeah. and um, it's yeah. primed for that I think but I hope they balance the light and dark I do too uh, on topic for what we're going to talk about today um, I hope that they have a um, uh, adequate representation of LGBTQ characters not only in Picard but also in the Lower Deck series as well mm. we got a few quick character breakdowns uh, but we don't know a lot about the characters there and I can only hope that the powers that be are looking to extend that representation into the animated space oh entirely and actually what I would really like to see which is what they haven't really given us in Discovery is showing the Federation as not caring about sort of the barriers between identities anymore um, right. while I feel like it's very important to have labels and identifiers um, represented in TV shows what I like about the Federation is that it sort of moved into this more utopian space where we can be whatever we want to be so I'd quite like it not even to be a thing I'd like to for there to be a character who has relationships with whoever they want regardless of gender and it's never kind of commented on or made a big deal of um i also i just want to see that and any like trans characters would be so important because we still haven't really seen that in in track i mean we'll talk i'm sure about dax and uh, her kind of gender stuff which is very interesting but it would be nice to have an obliquely trans character there but for it not to be made into some kind of special after school like after school special kind of episode (laughs) i want it just to be like chill i just want it to be there yeah chill yeah (laughs) that makes sense It's it's funny too because in tng and ds9 in the late 80s and early 90s, you get these frustrating, uh, ambiguous, for lack of a better term, glimpses of that sort of thing on TNG and Mm. DS9. You have characters who are often talking about uh, sort of mockingly, uh, like traditional, uh, in our era, male and female roles, like when Riker's going to wear the perfume or whatever in Angel 1. Mm. They're kind of laughing at it. Uh, but they're, but you're, you don't get the sense that it's completely outre for them. Like, it's just something that they wouldn't do. Um, and I don't, I'm never sure if it's, and we'll talk about this today, <laughs> intentions from the writers. I'm never sure if it's the writers uh, trying to introduce us to a little bit of this ambiguity in, like, traditional gender role. Mm-hmm. Or if it's just a bunch of women laughing that a guy's going to wear a sequined, like, blouse. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's very difficult, um, especially with TNG. I feel like it's more, it's a little bit more heteronormative in TNG and playing with those kind of, like, oh no he has to wear a dress kind of thing but then um i feel like they it it loosens up a little bit it depends on who's writing the episode a lot of unconscious biases are sneaking in especially in humor points because like i think that's when we're not paying attention the most when we write that stuff and we think it's funny yeah um 
a good comparison point actually um, is the TNG episode, um, The Host, which is the first time we see the Trill. And there's kind of tension, but comedic tension in the ending where Beverly's love interest throughout the episode, who is male, um, is a trill and is put into a female host and there's this scene where there's there's a lot of tension in the and the trill is still interested in Beverly and Beverly's like uh, no thanks and it feels like is the humor supposed to operate on us being like ah oh, two women how funny and silly obviously that's not going to happen or is it something else um, so that's kind of interesting but like I think DS9 kind of moves a little bit away from that and further to the blurring of the lines and the kind of playing also positioning aliens as being like things m- meaning different things for them so there's a character a male character who's mentioned a few times very briefly we never actually see him he's literally just like a lower deck style crewman who is an alien and has children actually bears children and they talk about expanding his quarters because he's just given birth again and it's right. just it's such a cool little thing to throw in there um and not make a big deal of and just be like <laughs> things are different so yeah <laughs> Take that, the Orville. (laughs) Uh, Well, why did you choose this specific episode we're joined to discuss today? Uh, It's one of my all-time favorites. Um, I think it's really compelling. It's very well written. Um, Even though Mm. it focuses in mostly on one character, it never feels off balance, which is good because sometimes these like character focus episodes you can be like hey what's uh, so-and-so doing at this point we haven't checked in with yeah. them but right. i feel like this one is compelling enough to really sort of drive that story through and, and keep you engaged um so that's fun but it, it means a lot to me personally because jadzia dax is probably my favorite character of all time maybe definitely mm. my favorite character in star trek and i think the way that they play the trailer also fascinating to me plus it's got it's incredibly important in the history of queer representation, not just for Star Trek, but I think for television as well. So yeah, it's, it's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> Worth a watch. Well, I'm excited that you wanted to talk about uh, this show on this show. Um, like many people, I watched and enjoyed the DS9 documentary, what we left behind this year. And also maybe like a lot of people, I don't know. I think I was left somewhat unsatisfied by the specific addressing uh, by the documentary of the show Silence on LGBTQ actors and stories. Mm-hmm. And I was appreciative of the um, the sort of mea culpa that Iris Stephen Bear presented. But even that seemed a little a little back patty, like they wanted credit for realizing that they should have done better. But really, <laughs> they should have just done better in the first place. I think a lot of the time their hands were tied. And this is something that, oh my goodness, when I was researching the, um, the queer Star Trek article that I did for io9 recently... Um, there's a, I think there was a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes that maybe mm-hmm. is still difficult for them to talk about um, because of maybe even because of contracts, uh, but certainly because of sort of professional etiquette. I think that. <laughs> yeah, I got that feeling too. Mm, uh, seeing some of the interviews, yeah. There was certainly pressure from, honestly, as, as early as the '80s, which it, I was surprised by from fans to introduce queer characters to Star Trek. And I was I was actually amazed it went back that far. There were letter writing campaigns, there were all sorts of things. Roddenberry made a promise at a convention and then everyone was like, oh my God, we're gonna get a gay character. And then the whole thing, it never quite went through in the way that it was supposed to. And I mean, we mm-hmm. didn't get a gay character in TNG. We got an analogy in the form of the outcast, which I still really like as an episode, but mm. it wasn't what the fans wanted at that point. And, um, there are loads of rumors about why that is. And certainly <laughs> yeah. there are execs in charge who could have made different decisions. Um, and one of them has even admitted as much in an interview. Um, but I think 
DS9 could get away with a lot because it was kind of the dark sheep of the franchise. That was something that <laughs> when I was interviewing Iris Stephen Bear and Ronald D. Moore last year for the anniversary article, um, came up a few times. Um, they had a lot of freedom, actually, and um, mm. because they were, you know, it wasn't a network show because of way, the way TV worked then. They didn't have to get past kind of censors. So they, they were able to do a lot of things. Um, and I think when the chance came to do something like this they were like yeah let's let's do it and they and they did it which i was really yeah. happy about and we'll definitely dive more into this as we go uh i just think that the the perception of how this the way that people's perception of this episode has changed over time both the fans and the people who created it is interesting especially in the documentary like how many episodes did they do on homelessness one episode mm. one one two-part episode and they gave themselves a, a check for homelessness but do they they have to remove the check for sexual identity in this act of self-flagellation it's like okay we get it yeah i think maybe they were just trying to they didn't want to give themselves too much praise they didn't want to also not give themselves it, it it's a difficult situation where you're trying to say the right thing, I think. <laughs> yeah. But I think it's all based around the strength of this one episode uh, and just how it's exactly what people wanted to see. Mm. Um, and we'll get into that, of course, as we go. Um, when we're talking about the episode, uh, it's rejoined uh, the fifth episode of the fourth season of DS9. It first aired on October 30th of 1995. The story is by Rene Echeverria. Echeverria's first script for Trek was the third season episode of TNG, The Offspring. After that, he became a staff writer for TNG and later DS9 and wrote over 30 scripts for Trek. In addition to being story editor for TNG's sixth and seventh season, he'd go on to co-create the USA Network series The 4400 and produce shows like Castle, Medium, and Teen Wolf. And the teleplay of the episode is by Ronald D. Moore and Echeverria. Ronald D. Moore is Ronald D. Moore. We've talked about him a lot on the show. I will say that his first script for TNG was The Bonding from the third season of TNG, and he likewise became a staff writer and a producer who worked on TNG, DS9, and Voyager. The episode was directed by Avery Brooks, who is... Avery Brooks, what do you say? Um, he directed nine episodes in total of DS9, starting with Tribunal in the second season and ending with the Dogs of War in the seventh season. The start date for this episode is 49195.5. And your assignment, Eleanor, if you can, is to give us a 25-word synopsis of Rejoined. Hmm. Okay. Um, Jadzia Dax is forced to confront her past and the taboos of Trill society when she is reunited with her ex-wife. Excellent. Of course, no mention of the artificial wormhole, which I think really takes a backseat as uh, yeah. the uh, sci-fi conceit uh, in this plot. But yes, excellent. And science stuff happens in the background. Yeah, and, 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 and they are scientists. Uh, here's some interesting facts from the memory banks about this episode. Showrunner Michael Piller originated the idea that Trills would have a taboo concerning reassociating with former hosts. And he, I think he felt that it would be a necessary facet to their society mm. to avoid a class division where joined Trill would just hang out with other joined Trill, the people they knew previously in their former lives, and they would form an aristocracy of sorts. Mm -hmm. And when I heard that, it reminded me of um, like like vampire stories where you get like the vampires <laughs> are just hanging out and talking about, you know, the Reformation or something, and they're treating humans like cattle or lesser beings. Yeah, I, I like that idea. <laughs> I think they were obviously trying to avoid that. Um, I, yeah, I also heard that. And I find that so interesting. Like Trill Society is fascinating because there's such an imbalance of so many things of power and of of uh, proportion of the population because I think it's something like ten, only 10% are joined. Um, right. But they don't, there's a, something that comes up later in DS9 where the po population are being lied to about how many uh, symbiotes are available. 
and yeah. um, and all of this, the taboo is really interesting, and I love the idea that it was try to try and prevent like a, a supremacy, uh, an aristocracy of joined trill. But at the same time, it it works very very well to control them, and uh, when you have that kind of an imbalance where you have more of unjoined, but more of uh, and fewer of um, the joined, but then the joined have the advantage of history and wisdom and 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 all of this stuff that actually it's it's really tense and i wish they had actually gone into it more i wish there had been more episodes on troll society but it's fun to get this glimpse into uh into how tense that society is yeah and there's a lot of grist i think for the story mill for future mm. uh series or or uh episodes of already announced series it's not something that we as you mentioned hear a lot about but i think the things it's one of those things where it's like you develop a concept really strongly and not not everything you come up necessarily shows up on the screen but that mm. that basis is there and just hearing that pillar was sort of thinking about it in those terms uh, re just reassures for me that like I think they really knew what they were doing they just never got a chance to really tell us more they really did and the fun thing I found out as well I was when I was looking into um, the idea of reassociation re was that they always wanted to tell a story about a societal taboo they came at it from that angle they wanted to yeah. tell a story that would be analogous to so many things in our society and specifically it became kind of the uh, a romantic one because of the idea of reassociation so when they were developing that when they thought okay now now we, we want to do this at season four. Let's let's explore this. Um, they I don't know who came up with the idea of, of making it actually between two women. But um, I mean, when I was interviewing him, Ronald D. Moore said that it was built into the concept of the trill from the begin from the beginning. Mm -hmm. And there are some quotes from him um, in, I think, the Deep Space Nine companion book where he he liked the idea of exploring an alien taboo, which sounded very, very ridiculous on Trill, and yet it makes it makes us think about our own taboos and how they're ridiculous. And the right. best way to demonstrate that was to have it be between two women. Right. Because then we'd be thinking about how ridiculous the taboo was within the context of this alien civilization, yeah. and then think, oh, but doesn't that mean that our taboo against women being together is also ridiculous? And I was just like, oh, that's great. Because yeah. <laughs> at the time, there was a real trend because the first lesbian kiss happened on television maybe four years before this. Mm -hmm. And then it, there, it caused a spike in ratings for that TV show. So suddenly every TV show is like, ooh, maybe we want to do it. And it's literally called the lesbian kiss episode. Like you can Google it and there will be a list of all of the shows yeah. that decided to do this. Right. And whether it was, you know, tropey, whether it was for ratings, whether it was actually trying to get representation, it was always um, kind of tokenistic. But what I love about the way Deep Space Nine did it is they didn't even think of that until later on in the story process. So it yeah. doesn't, I think it actually holds up pretty well to other lesbian kiss episodes of that era in that it feels like a genuine st love story that has transcended eras and it really talks about societal differences and societal taboos without it making the societal taboo be the fact that they're the same gender. That's fantastic. I love it. <laughs> yeah, which has been the strength of storytelling in Star Trek and their sort of allegorical approach to things since they began. Uh, Alexander Siddig and Terry Farrell apparently had to actually learn sleight of hand a little for the close-up magic scene uh, in the opening <laughs> scene. And I'm... I can't believe that the Ferengi 
uh, that Cork is so mystified by magic. They don't have any kind of uh, ledger domain. Their society is so based on deception that they must have uh, something similar to that. But of course, he is completely blown away by what they're doing. Yeah. Uh, this episode features the franchise's first same-sex kiss, which of course was the center of controversy at the time. And it was similar to the response uh, to the show's first interracial kiss in 1968. Mm. It, wouldn't, it wasn't until uh, Into the Forest I Go, the Star Trek Discovery 22 years after this episode aired, that the first Star Trek male-to-male kiss was seen mm. on TV. Um, and you note, you you pointed out earlier that it's a very tight episode focused mainly on Jedzia. Uh, Jake is not even in this episode, and Odo has no lines. He only appears in the party. <laughs> yeah, it's just sort of in the background. Yeah, just just there. Let's talk about the guest stars for this episode. Susanna Thompson appears as Lenara Khan. Thompson has played four separate characters in Star Trek shows. She appeared as Veril in the next phase and Jaya in the in Frame of Mind in the fifth and sixth seasons of TNG. She also appeared in three episodes of Voyager as the Borg Queen. Thompson has had an extensive career in film and television, and she played Lieutenant Colonel Hollis Mann on NCIS, and she appears regularly on the CW series Arrow as more queen. She originally auditioned for the role of the Borg Queen in the First Contact movie, uh, a role that went to Alice Krieg in the film, but when Alice Krieg was unavailable to shoot for the Voyager episodes, she was contacted to take up the role. I did not know that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I mean, they have a similar kind of look. I mean, you can tell that they're different, but they. Mm. I, I read that she um, was... She was impressed by Alex Krieg's uh, you know, role in First Contact, and she tried to do something similar, um, but also put her own kind of spin on it in the same way. And it's always funny when you hear actors who are probably just, they, they do soap operas, they do cop shows, they do sci-fi, they're actors. They have to take this on and do whatever it is. But she was talking about how the way that the Borg Queen is nominally the same person but is like you know a, a clone or a genetic sort of offshoot of another board queen she thought maybe there was some variance there in the <laughs> genetics and so that's where like the differences in my behavior came from and I just I, I it was an interesting look at her process yeah she seems to put a lot of thought behind her work you can you can so tell that and rejoin like yeah. the approach she has to the characters there's so much nuance in every expression and the sexual tension, the romantic tension between her and Jadzia, um, is is fantastic. Um, you really genuinely believe that they had something, that they have this weight of history, and like every moment, every sort of like charged look and and, and slight brush of the hand, it's it, it builds this incredible tension. And um, I think it's because she really believes in the character. She obviously put a lot of thought into Lenara and how she grieved for. Um, for you know her husband and how she feels now seeing her husband as this woman and yeah, it's fantastic yeah and i like the fact that 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 sort of i'm not sure what to how to term it not indiscretion but that sort of rift between them gets healed um as their relationship progresses mm. uh they could just because like you said like you can feel the attraction between them but they aren't like immediately throwing themselves at each other and they're not just flirting the entire time they have hurdles in their own relationship and their history to get over before mm. they reach a point where they want to reunite. And I like the fact that Dax has to basically say to her, you were right. Like I was being kind of reckless and I wasn't, you know, I, I got into this shuttle and I thought everything would be fine. And of course it wasn't. And so, mm. um, you know, that's something that I have to atone for before we can go, you know, beyond this point. Mm, I love that as well. I like that we're getting a glimpse of the relationship and they have to 
we sort of learn about it backwards and they have to yeah. pick it. They first yeah. have to bicker a little bit about yeah. what yeah. happened and, and have those old resentments surface slightly, even as they're getting to know each other as their new selves. And then later they you, you get this really nice redemption where they both apologize and it's really beautiful and it means something. What I really love actually in those interactions is at the beginning, and this is something that happens a lot through the trills, like um, moving from host to host, is that they will switch between um, third third person pronouns and first person pronouns when referring to previous hosts and um, in their first interactions um, when they're talking about their past Lenara and Jadzia use third person pronouns and they talk about the names of their previous hosts right and then when they're apologizing and when they they come together in this much truer sense they're saying I and it's just so it's so beautiful because you can see the interaction between the symbiote and the host but also how for them it's not just a it may seem very confusing to people um, external to that who only have sort of one entity inside them. But <laughs> right. um, for them, it seems to have a lot to do with whether or not they're distancing themselves from their past and how how they feel in relation to their past self. And it's, it's really, it's fascinating, but it, it's so simple and you wouldn't notice it unless you were looking for it. Sure. But it immediately conveys that they're closer in that moment when they are apologizing. Yeah, and there's something really, I think, true about that. Uh, as good of writers as uh, Rene Echeverria and uh, Ronald D. Moore are, there's no way that they were thinking about it like in those terms, like in the mm. terms of uh, gender identity and and that sort of thing. But yet, it still works exactly as you as you as you've pointed out. Mm. On that level, uh, Tim Ryan plays Bajal Otner. Ryan had a recurring role on the ABC drama China Beach in the late 80s, but he's also made many appearances on television since then, sometimes under the credit Tim Meinelschmidt. And James Noah plays Hanner Pren. Noah would also appear in the third season episode of Voyager entitled Displaced as Dr. Rislin. Noah has had a long career in TV and film. His first credited role was in a 1959 episode of The Adventures of Ozzie and Harriet. And Dr. Rizian and Hanner Pren aren't the only doctors he's played. He's played a doctor at least five times in his career, as well as a judge, mayor, priest, and a police lieutenant. And these two guys are, um, they don't have big roles in this episode. They're kind of there uh, to serve uh, certain um, elements in the story. But I got to calling them uh, Megamind and Dames Jaren, because I thought the older guy looked a little bit like James Darren if you squint a little bit. And the other guy had a large cranium, like Megamind. I love Megamind. Underrated movie. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes. Uh, Let's talk about the episode itself. You wrote an article early in the year for io9 called How Queer is Star Trek? Mm. And the answer was, um, at least until Discovery, not very queer, I think. Can you talk about the history of Trek's flirtation, uh, pardon the pun, with gay characters and (laughs) storylines? I mean, it's fascinating. Um, You have, right from the beginning, you have that gorgeous subtext between uh, Kirk and Spock, which chimed with people even at the time, which is really fascinating. If you look into the history, if you're interested in sort of fandom and how that kind of culture operates, a lot of it does go back to to Star Trek. I mean, to be sure, there were fandoms of a kind before that, but what we think of as how modern fandom operates in terms of having conventions, writing fanfic, fanzines, getting together and creating stuff around a thing. Um, that pretty much started with Star Trek and the first conventions in the US at least were Star Trek conventions. So people at the time were writing um, fanfic about about the characters and um, there was a different relationship then between fans and writers. They would actually like a copy of the... um, 
fanzine Spockanalia would often find its way into the offices of the Star Trek writers. And I think Roddenberry called it required reading, which (laughs) is very sweet. So the writers were totally aware of what was going on there. And it was um, it was nice. I think people not only did people sort of pick up on the subtext uh, between these two characters, I think queer people have always chimed with Star Trek because it presents a really a hopeful future where everyone is accepted and um, it's rare that we get utopias in fiction at all even rarer nowadays it feels like in in television um yeah but it's rarer still to see utopia that you're kind of included in at least by merit of the the concept of such utopia so that's why people began pressing okay then let's actually see us in this utopia if you're talking about how prejudice has all disappeared where are the queer people so that's how right. that kind of kicked off in the 80s, as I sort of already said. And and Roddenberry made this promise. And then there was just so much conflict. An episode was written in <laughs> Blood and Fire for TNG. Which, yes. Oh, I don't know. Have you ever read the, the script? Well, I have. Leaked? I, I, I have read the script. Mm. And there's this, um, this is all going back to this um, story that David Gerald's told again and mm. again. And personally, like, I don't know, like, uh, Gene Roddenberry's, like, personal views or beliefs or what he thinks about uh, homosexuality or gay people or whatever, but it does seem that he is interested in good story material. Mm -hmm. And also he is interested in what the fans have to say, you know? And so Mm -hmm. you hear that he would go to conventions and people would say, well, why don't we have gay characters and storylines? And he'd say, we will do it. We'll do it. And then of course, David Gerald tells a story about how they were at a con um, just before TNG premiered and somebody asked him the same thing. And he promised that they would have uh, an LGBTQ character or storyline. And David Gerald goes off and writes blood and fire, um, an episode that isn't even about (laughs) gay characters. Like it features, uh, two like side characters that are gay characters mm. and of course that just blew everything up yeah the plot was also an an analogy for the aids crisis and i think that was right. also what some people within the production were not comfortable with and yeah. um gerald felt very strongly about it he even wanted to put a card at the end of the episode that invited people to donate blood um because it was all about regular bloodworms. Honestly, nowadays looking at the episode, you can read it and think, oh my God, this is so on the nose. But right, I mean, it yeah. was season one of TNG. I mean, have you seen yeah. season one of TNG? Yeah. <laughs> um, it was it was a decent, it was certainly at least a decent episode for, for season one and could have been could have been made even better had it made it to air. But um, it never did. Yeah, and I don't want to bury anybody who doesn't deserve it, um, but if they do, then let's do it. But you, you hear uh, different theories about uh, who had a problem with it. You know, it's easy to say the network, but as far as specific people, you know, we don't know. Uh, I'm sure we can say that uh, Leonard Mazelish was against it, though. Nobody nobody oh, has a problem yes. burying him. <laughs> oh, my goodness, yes. I mean, Gerald has talked about how difficult he felt like it was a very toxic work environment and that Mazelish Oh, yeah. Made it even more toxic. Um, There's, and, so. I, and I've heard uh, David Gerald's a great interview. I've heard uh, more measured responses from him. And then I've mm. heard somebody just uh, <laughs> set him to, to uh, 10 because, yeah, I heard a very vociferous sort mm. of response to that situation as well. But, yeah, it sounds like it, it wasn't fun for some people to uh, work in those early days of TNG. No, not at all. And I think there were people who stayed in the – some of them sort of left, some of them quit. Um, but I think there were people that stayed um, in positions of power who – were a little bit more cautious, let's say. That would be a sure. very generous way of saying it. Um, I mean, Rick Berman, when, you know, later on, when The Outcast came out, and he, he is quoted actually 
literally a month later, I think, in a, in a magazine saying how he felt like um, had they cast a male actor in um, the role of uh, Riker's love interest, right. that a kiss between them would have been unpalatable for viewers. He's very, very concerned in all of his quotes about how queer representation would affect viewership. And, you know, it's difficult to know whether, you know, just like how much of a factor that was in his decision. Clearly a huge one, but it's, yeah, it was... Certainly, there were a lot of roadblocks for writers moving forward. Yeah, and when Jerry Taylor wrote the episode, The Outcast, then, I mean, I have to imagine that she just didn't come up with this sci-fi idea about a planet of people who were sort of genderqueer. Like, mm. she she must have had that on her mind. And then to submit it to uh, the producers in charge and have them say, well, we can't do this, or it definitely has to be a female actress that plays the role of Soren. I just wonder, like, <laughs> there, there must be some some great hot take uh, interviews with Jerry Taylor somewhere, or maybe she mm-hmm. uh, just wants to uh, doesn't want to screw up her promotion. But it has to be really frustrating to be um, a writer uh, in a situation like this, come up with these great ideas, and if you're somebody like Ronald D. Moore, I've heard him. I've heard him go both ways because I've heard him say, like I've heard a lot of the people behind uh, the scenes say that it was never about. Uh, uh, gay characters, uh, something like Rejoined. Mm. And then I've also heard them say, mm, we had to sneak it through. It was tough, but we got it through. <laughs> and I'm not sure if that's just like revisionism or if it's just, as you mentioned before, people who are now um, out from under the umbrella of a contract or free to say more. But like you, when you look at people's interviews from the time, even interviews with people like Terry Farrell, there's this weird insistence about it not being gay or that like being completely... Um, ancillary to what they're trying to accomplish. And Mm -mm. the legacy of this episode is that was everything that was accomplished by the episode. Yeah, I think it's it's very difficult to say. Um, You know, I mean, I think they didn't want it to be labeled as the gay episode. They wanted it to be more complex (laughs) than that. And they failed because that's exactly what it is now today. But the thing is, yeah, but it always was. If it's going to be about a societal taboo, that's that's what it's about. Like, yeah. I think that it's it's very difficult for people when they're put on the spot to immediately come out with what people want to hear. But um, I think yeah. it means different things to different people. For for Terry Farrell, I think it was a, a really interesting episode for her character and her character's development, which it certainly is. Yeah. Um, for for the writers, it was a chance for them to deal with a lot of interesting societal tensions and issues that were analogous to the ones we still have and then also provide representation and you get different sides of that story. One of the things I love about this episode is because it works on all these multi multifaceted levels and you know you get people who who say oh but it's another queer story using aliens as an analogy don't you see that that's problematic and I'm like well yes and no um I think that it's it allowed them to tell a story that was inherently queer in in terms of it being about, you know, being prevented from loving someone, right. um, but without actually introducing the idea of homophobia to the Federation, and no one wants that. And actually, there's a fantastic conversation between Kira and Bashir, which lasts maybe like, I don't know, 45 seconds. Um, well, probably a little bit longer than that, um, early on in the episode, where they're just talking about Lenar and Jadzia and um, them having this history. Never once... Do they bring up the fact that they're both the same gender? And what that establishes is that same gender relations are not 
they're not thought of as being weird or problematic at all in either the Federation or Bajoran society. And that is yeah. something really tiny but crucial that that episode establishes. So it kind of, it's a, it's a, it's a win-win. You get to tell a story that the sort of your queer viewers will chime with about these things that they're dealing with, but then also show that love between two women is so fine it's not even thought of as being not fine. And I'm like, yeah, that's kind of cool. Yeah, we get that scene between Kira and uh, Bashir uh, where they're kind of laying it out. And there are a couple scenes in this episode that are like a, a kind of densely expositional, <laughs> but yeah. they're required, I guess, if you're just coming in. You have to understand, you know, who Dax is and what her life has been like. But I like the mm. fact that Kira's just like, so they're going to get together? And Bashir's like, mm, I don't think they can. And you're waiting for the shoe to drop, but it's the fact that the Trills have this, you know, this mm. weird taboo. And it's never even questioned. In fact, Kira, who... Kira, if she was in this situation, she would go for it because Kira just bucks all trends and traditions. But I love the fact that, yeah, they never even questioned the fact that it's uh, it's two women. Mm -hmm. I just think it's crazy that the show just would would let that opportunity to slip by to twist the knife a little bit. You know, it's I, I get that they were avoiding sensationalism. Uh, if you believe Rick Berman, you know, they'd get canceled if they did it or whatever. I know they didn't want to be misunderstood. Something else that I've run into just reading on the internet about people's responses, quotes from the writers, the actors at the time. I think that maybe we're getting a skewed picture of the, the past because the mm. people who write Memory Alpha are fans and fans have a really weird uh, insistence on eliminating the quote-unquote gayness from this episode mm. uh, which is you know you, you see endlessly on Facebook or, or Reddit or whatever you know the worms are genderless man it's not two women in love which is even <laughs> crazier because they can understand two a gender genderless or genderqueer like worm characters being in love but if two women are oh forget about it like if anything this episode obliterates gender yeah isn't that more progressive? That's, You're right. <laughs> that's a really fun thing, actually, that I think about a lot with, like, the outcast and with Jadzia Jax as a character is that this has aged so well. It's actually become more progressive with age because at the time they were using gender to be analogous for, like, uh, sexuality. But now we're like, no, the idea of someone changing gender is actually even more kind of like taboo than than the idea maybe than the idea yeah. of like same sex um, relationships so we can look at dax now and think oh well this is a arguably gender fluid individual who you know switches gender and you can see how gender norms are kind of dealt with um through her saying you know like don't in blood ties she says if it um to one of her klingon her old klingon mates and they're having a battle and she says, you know, don't go easy on me. If it helps, think of me as a man. I've been one several times. And it's like, <laughs> right. that's awesome. That's such yeah. a fun thing. And uh, yeah, people who critique it and say, oh, but they're not really gendered at all. And it's like, oh, so you accept that non-binary genders are a thing. And they probably right. be like, oh, Checkmate. wait, no. <laughs> Backpedal. Yeah. I've heard people make uh, comparisons to Plato's stepchildren that like Plato's stepchildren features an inter interracial kiss, but it's not about interracial, uh, interracial relationships, which is crazy because Plato's stepchildren is about psychic Greek weeaboos. Like if, if, <laughs> if Kirk and Uhura spent the entire episode trying to kiss each other or not trying to kiss each other and then they were like forced to, it might be about interracial romance. But instead it's an episode about the landing party actually being pretty nice and respectful to a little person. <laughs> exactly, yeah. These things um, can be seen from so many different perspectives, which is fun because, you know, it's sci-fi and aliens <laughs> would always be that analogy. But yeah. like you'll see, you'll see that in Rejoined as well where you could say... 
well, when Lenara and Jadzia, when Dax and Khan were originally together, it was a heterosexual relationship. So that helps the, um, specifically the sort of the straight people in the audience understand <sighs> their romance now because it's yeah. like, oh yeah, but they used to be straight. Right. So this right. is obviously just a, a hangover. But at the same time, doesn't that also show that love transcends gender? And yeah. So that's also kind of a cool thing. <laughs> Nobody would ever talk about let that be your last battlefield and with a straight face trying to say that it's about, oh, it's just about people who have half black on one side and half white on the other side of their faces. Like they can understand the metaphor there, but, you know, fandom sometimes. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, in my opinion, this always had to be about two women. Um, it's the only way that it really works. Like otherwise, if uh, Lenara was a, a male or a man character, as they originally had planned to do, it's just one more one-off boyfriend for Dax. Um, mm-hmm. And Trek has always dealt an allegory, and the Trill's prescription on on reassociation doesn't have any resonance if it's not standing in for discrimination in our own society. Yeah, it's interesting to to think of whether she was originally written as as male or female. I, I it's difficult to put the finger on because they've I've heard rumors that she was originally male in the script and then later was changed to female but yeah. I don't know I I, I there, there are later quotes that say that they intended from the beginning for her to be um, a woman but um, but Dax is a fun character because she has she's kind of a stud you know she has lots of little trysts and stuff and then after this episode in the next season you see um, another one of uh, sort of what her ex flings who also is a woman and it's one of uh, Curzon's ex sort of girlfriends in yeah. um I did write the episode name down it's in season five it's let he who is without sin um she and Worf are together at that point so they go to Riser for some fun and right. um along comes Jad's and Curzon's ex and Worf gets all kind of worried because Jadzia is pretty flirtatious with her and that's that's fun because then they didn't have to make an episode about taboo they could just be like yep see jadzia likes uh she kind of likes girls <laughs> yeah and it's put on wharf too that mm. it's sort of his uptightness like it's not we do see that it is a facet of dax's character that she is uh, a romantic and she loves and loses and has had you know different partners and stuff like that but it's never I just feel like on a sitcom, I don't know, Friends, if Ross starts dating a girl and he finds out that she dated, you know, 30 guys before him, that would be a big problem for Mm. Ross to get over. And we're supposed to like sympathize with him. But instead, it's like we understand who Dax is at this point and we accept her as being this way. And it's really Worf who is the villain of the episode because, of course, (laughs) he starts screwing with the weather or whatever. It's kind of a weird episode. but It's very strange. (laughs) Could this episode rejoined only happen on DS9? I mean, I'm a huge Deep Space Nine fan, so I would say yes. <laughs> but say I, yes. But I think also objectively, yes. I think Deep Space Nine, from the beginning, was all about shirking the conventions of the past within Star Trek itself. Uh-huh. Um, you know, you've got Iris Stephen Bear, who, um, I mean, he, he said to me in, in the interview that I did for the anniversary thing, and he's probably said this to other people as well, um, that he never really believed in the idea of the Federation as a utopia. Um, that to him it was just a little bit too simple, a little bit too easy. And he was interested in in showing a more complex, what he saw as a more complex story. And um, Ronald D. Moore is very interested in people and characters and cultures. And um, Michael Piller and Renia Chavara, the other sort of writers who are involved in Deep Space Nine, I think they wanted to tell a story about sort of international politics and show a glimpse um, of the universe outside the Federation. And with that came 
a whole lot of, of colourful and, and shifting perspectives and dealing with what happens when your values and your worldviews clash with someone else's and, and finding the midpoint between that. So even though shows like TNG and, and Voyager and, and the original series dealt with a lot of like thought experiment um, episodes or like social analogy episodes, they always felt to me, I mean, TNG is, is really, really good and has moments where it hits very, very hard. Yeah. But sometimes it feels a little bit like it is kind of like, we're going to talk about this concept now and let's think about it, which is great and I enjoy. Right. But in Deep Space <laughs> Nine, it feels a lot more kind of shades of gray a lot more kind of natural like (laughs) let's let's explore the weird stuff that that happens when people try and form a society um and then also the fact that it was the the dark sheep and they had maybe a little bit more freedom and they wanted to push the envelope so they did and they were a few years you know later on than next generation having said that though voyager never had any queer characters so yeah yeah and enterprise Um, oh my goodness yeah well (laughs) let's less said the better Mm. i I disagree. Well, I, um, that's fascinating. Um, just what you said about the the way that uh, some of those premier writers of the show want to challenge or don't believe uh, in the utopia, and you see that in like you know Battlestar Galactica, for instance, um, mm. or his other work. I kind of agree and disagree with them because. Um, for me, the the biggest fiction of a universe like Star Trek isn't warp drive. It isn't uh, replicators. It's the fact that you know, we live in a utopia. It's the fact mm. that we have, uh, quote unquote, solved our problems. And of course, not all of them, but enough to the point where we can um, function as this egalitarian society. But that's mm. kind of like what I'm there for. That's kind of what I'm buying into. And it's true that original series um, was more, we're perfect. We fly to a planet where uh, they let a computer tell them how many people they have to kill, you know, to make this war make sense or whatever. Um, that's, you know, commentary on, other societies are bad societies, whereas as later, as Trek goes on later, we're more willing to look at the problems in our own society. But I don't think that we have to like mess up the Federation or let the Federation fall in order to really explore um, relevant topics, you know, for humanity. Um, I'm a big fan of uh, the late science fiction author um, Ian M. Banks and his uh, his books uh, are centered around a society that's very similar to the Federation. It's a anarchistic uh, utopian society called the culture and he wrote like i can't remember how many books maybe seven or eight books about the culture and uh, in fandom we're always like the the discussion in fandom is always like when is he going to write a book about the fall of the culture like when's the culture going to fall apart and my opinion was always like why would the culture ever fall apart they've Mm. lasted for almost a thousand years in the span of his books and they evolve and things change and as as a nation they're very laissez-faire about how the structure of their nation, like you can be a part of the culture. If you say you are, people break off from the culture, they come back. It's this sort of like different idea of a state. I think that we have an idea of what a state or a country has to be. And so we put that on the Federation. Um, And to be fair, the Federation was developed by a guy who fought in World War II. Like he was, Mm -hmm. you know, had uh, very uh, traditional ideas about it. But it's like, I don't think we need to like, I'm tired of bad morals, you know, and I'm tired of there always being like a conspiracy in uh, the Federation. And that's how we uh, really get reflective in our Star Trek storytelling. I totally agree. I adore the idea of Utopia. I think that it's actually a much more interesting storytelling device than people give it credit for, simply because people don't give it credit for being an interesting story device. Why do we think a Utopia is boring? Is it actually because it's a real challenge 
to write. Um, I thought a lot about this and I'm like, I want to see more utopias and I want to see utopias that are perfect in how that they kind of, and the way that they're perfect really challenges how we see our society because we see how it's different from the society we have now and that's the reason that it works better. You know, yeah. that's actually very challenging. But um, I so I love that and I want to see more of that and I want to see the new Star Trek shows really embrace that because I feel like Deep Space Nine actually told quite a good story about the Federation in showing the contrast to it and showing that you still have to remain vigilant no matter how much you think you've created a utopia, you, mm -hmm. you cannot be complacent. Yeah. Um, and it was really good in showing the, the nuances of that, even though, you know, Section 31 isn't resolved in that show. But I see things like Discovery, they want to they wanna be the edgy show, you know, they want to appeal to modern viewers. And, and the way they're doing that is by showing doing a darker show than The Next Generation and by, you know, this sort of sunny side of the Federation. But at the same time, they're not challenging the Federation. Deep Space Nine was a grittier show, it was a darker show comparatively to the other shows in the franchise because it challenged the Federation, because it said, okay, here are the limits and here is the arrogance and here's the hypocrisy and here's how we're trying to better it. Discovery just has arrogance and hypocrisy there and never deals with it. It never really properly challenges it. And the way that Section 31 is portrayed in that show, I'm kind of concerned about because they, they glamorize it. They're like, here's the cool spy side of things. Let's never talk about this again because plot. And it's like, uh, uh, what are you saying here? <laughs> yeah. They want it to be darker, but they don't want to actually deal with what that means is my issue with Discovery. Yeah, I mean, people forget that, you know, when we see Sloane meet his end, he's brain dead on a table, basically. And they're mm. having to try to ransack his brain for secrets because he wouldn't share anything with anybody else. Um, you mentioned uh, the episode, um, which I can't remember the name of it now, uh, from TNG before that featured the first trill. Um, the and host. the fact The host, that's right. Mm -hmm. Um and the fact that um, at the end of the episode, uh, Onan in uh, a new host comes to uh, Bev to sort of uh, restart their relationship. And she's like, eh, I, don't, I don't think so. <laughs> um, and you said that it's played for comedy. I guess I never saw comedy there. I was always worried about, well, worried. I mean, I was always just wondering about the clear discomfort that you see um, in Beverly's face and wondering if if they were trying to communicate, well, there's no way that I can go forward with this because uh, this is a female now. Or if it's just, you know, your boyfriend is also a girlfriend, is also an alien, if it was too weird for that reason. Or I was wondering what they were really trying to say, if they were trying to say something specific with that. Mm. And I mean, you know, if, if Bev is not bisexual, that's totally fine. But that doesn't have, I think, quite a... Um, a positive modern reading uh, today mm -hmm. as something like Rejoin does. No, yeah, the ambiguity there actually doesn't do it any favours at all because it's so easy to watch it through a heteronormative lens and be like, Haha, of course, it's kind of a no homo. It's like, oh, I'm good, thanks. Even though we shared a lot and I said I loved you, I don't like this. And I was cool when it. you were a Riker. That was fine. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's just, it's not dealt with very well. It's not dealt with at all. I think that's the issue. I think if they had actually said you know if she had said actually thanks but you're not my type or actually I find it very difficult to deal with the fact that you're a different person now and we said goodbye and I don't know what that means and yeah. it's just you know it's just a bit too alien for me that would yeah. have been interesting because then we could have said okay yeah clearly this is just Beverly's pref the sexual preferences or oh interesting so Beverly actually has some uh, issues with kind of like alien interaction and and the idea of the trillers is very interesting if you think about how they're human, if they have a romance with humans, how humans would deal 
with the fact that their that their love of their life or whatever is dead but still going on but slightly different like that's really complex and that's something that you kind of see with wolf and esri but i don't know i feel like season seven leaves me cold in in some ways because of how they it just feels falls a little bit flat for me but um, but Would you they, know that's still there, you know. Yeah, I'm I'm interested in your opinion about that, the connection between Worf and Ezri, because it feels to me like you know they they knew at that point they had only one year left, and they bring mm. this new character on, and so they sort of fast forward through the acceptance and denial and anger and all all the other steps mm. of the Kubler Ross scale, yeah. uh, because they have uh, Worf and Ezri sort of hook up again, um, and then immediately sort of be like, well, this that's not going to be a thing. And then eventually they end up in a place where she's, you know, I think they're very close friends. She's very instrumental in actually convincing him to to kill Gowron. So yeah. um, they do end up in a good place. But yeah, I think I'd agree that it's it's not handled well. And I think the problem was is that they just sort of ran out of time. Yeah, they did. And that's that's the kind of relationship development that would have taken years, both in show and sort of out of the within the canon, and then also in like it would it should have taken seasons, at least two seasons, to deal with with this plot. And then so they they rush through that, they kind of go through the motions. I think having them sleep together was an odd idea. I think they just shouldn't have done that because they never dealt with Worf's grief in a way that was proper as well. Like it kind of undermines what Jadzia meant to him and the show in general which is a really uncomfortable space to be in. And then they're like, oh, yeah, and Bashir and uh, Ezri really love each other. Look at them. That was, so yeah, happy. That was really And it's like, yeah. what, they attracted like twice. <laughs> What's going on? Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. then bringing up Bashir's um, cr- crush on Jadzia again. I really hate that because like it's there in the beginning and then they become really good friends and they have yeah. a fantastic dynamic and they're really actually very similar, but they contrast in nice ways and, and seeing their friendship is, is really fun. <laughs> they're and doing they're magic like, oh, tricks together. And <laughs> yeah, it's cute. It's right. cute. And they're kind of each other's wingman at some point. Right. And then the writers are like, oh, but they were secreted in love the whole time. And it's like, no. <laughs> With 50 years of Trek storytelling, why can't Trek, why didn't Trek get it right until until now, until Discovery? I wouldn't say it's got it right now, to be honest. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. Um, Go on. I mean, oof, I'm back on my... I mean, at least we've got gay actors playing gay characters. Sure. I mean, yeah, and got the, that. Oh God, I mean, I love Anthony Rapp and Wilson Cruz. They're they're incredible. I mean, I love Rent, so I'm like, yes. <laughs> they've also, they've both, they've, they've each done so much for, for representation and they're both, I mean, they're both activists in a way. I know Wilson Cruz is very, um, very invested in, in activism as well. Um, so it's hugely important that, that not only gay characters are on Discovery, but that it's portrayed by gay actors and these specific gay actors. I, I think they're fantastic at what they do. Um, but at the same time, yeah. I'm back. Here I am with my unpopular discovery opinions. Um, <laughs> I I feel like their relationship in season one, I quite liked it. It was um, it felt quite natural. Um, they were a married couple, and it was very it was very sweet. Um, and there was clearly they were working with the fact that Anthony Rapp and Wilson Cruz have worked together before because they bring this like gravity of history. But I feel like the obviously. The way they yeah. handled the death was weird, and then the way they brought him back was even weirder. I really didn't like the way they sort of <laughs> didn't and did do that in season two with him coming back. And oh my goodness, I think it was I think it was a mess to be honest. Um, and I think it's also kind of sad that this is the only representation that we've had so far in Discovery. That it, it's like oh okay great you've got you've got these two guys who are in love that's fantastic, but 
it's just them and um, they're married and no one else is kind of seen to be queer at all. Yeah. They they have a couple of background lesbians <laughs> in um, uh, the Time Loop episode in season one where they're, they're dancing in the background. And I'm like, that's that's great. That's great. Have that more. Have have it be more fluid. Have it, have it be more accepted. And there's this weird scene where in season two where um, Giorgio, who seems to be bisexual, um, if we go by a blink and you miss it scene in the, at the end of season one where she seems to have a tryst with a male and a female Orion. Um, so I'm like, okay, she's bisexual. That's <laughs> that's in my head now. You can't take that away, Discovery. Um, and then you have her weirdly coming on to um, Stamets and being like, oh, well, in my dimension, you were Pam and we had sex. And he's like, well, in this and every dimension, I'm gay, so go away. And it was just such a weird, weird scene. I was like, what am I watching? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Um, I think it's it, it's like a hard turn. I and mean, we've talked about this before, uh, but it's like a hard turn into the kind of depraved bisexual sort of trope, mm-hmm. which I feel like if you want to give that scene the benefit of the doubt, they are playing into like she is, you know, playing up that in order to discomfort them, mm-hmm. you know, and sort of uh, sort of stand out. But mm-hmm. it's still like. That's a lot of nuance for a typical uh, TV audience. Yeah, it, it's difficult to say whether they're subverting the trope or doing the trope. Right now, they're just doing the trope. I adore yeah. her as a character, though, and I think oh, bisexuality is so difficult to portray. I mean, we, you know, we were talking about the, the the clash between kind of like gay male representation and, and lesbian representation, but bisexual representation is also very, very difficult to, to handle and the term bisexual barely ever gets uttered in Orange is the New Black you have a protagonist who is bisexual and they refuse to say the word until literally this year this season they finally use that word to describe her they shirk it at every opportunity she's like oh I don't like labels and it's like "Uh, okay Okay. (laughs) that only really gets you so far and um, yeah so I quite like them to they've got an opportunity here with Giorgio to to undermine our values to to say hey, you think of this as being the way things are. Well, she's from the mirror universe and she doesn't care about your rules and your norms and she's going to do what she wants. And that's fun. <laughs> you get that actually in the Mirrorverse episode of uh, Deep Space Nine. You also have some queer characters. Yeah, why is it, it's, it's game on in the mirror universe yeah. for, for this sort of thing. Everyone's so why, why is it like that? Right. <laughs> um, yeah, because you've got Kira, yeah. um, who, intending Kira, who is, who is bisexual and she actually has a kiss with the unjoined um, Esri Tegan <laughs> in a Mirror Universe episode in season seven. Right. Um, Which I think is the eighth um, the eighth ever uh, lesbian kiss. Uh, the one mm. in uh, Rejoined is the fifth. So Trek has <laughs> uh, two on the board for the uh, first ten yeah, lesbian kisses on TV. Around. That's worth something. <laughs> Points to Trek. But um, <laughs> the reason this kind of exists is because when you've got antagonists, when you've got people who already have a license to do whatever they want because they are villains, essentially then you can make them do whatever they want and there's you know it's good and bad in in showing queer people as part of that it gives you a license to show queer people but like is that good or bad so like that (sighs) this is this is the complex situation of the depraved bisexual but what i adore about um rejoined is that it works so well as a lesbian story because of the because of the taboo and because you know of the pining and it reminds me a lot of like a lot of scenes in gentleman jack which i've been watching but it's also inherently a bisexual story which I only really realized yeah. when I rewatched this um, because um, I was discussing it with a friend of mine who um, who is also queer and, and we have a lot of very in-depth discussions about Star Trek. And he said, oh, but it's, you know, it's it's not a queer story because, you know, she can be with other people. This is just this one person she can't be with. And I was like, 
It's a bi story. She can be with one type of person, but she can't be with another type of person, which makes it right. bisexual inherently as well. And I was like, ah, oh, that's neat. I don't think that's what they intended at all, but it's a fun dimension of the story. Well, that's why I think that it, it can only work when the other person in the relationship is a woman because we live in this world where they don't want to say it on screen or, or focus on it but you can do whatever you want there's no societal taboo against same-sex relationships but then they introduce in that great allegorical way that Trek does this alien taboo that you you can't reassociate and so you put that thing in place that should be gone in their society like it's it's I I can't believe that they didn't mean this or I can't believe that they would, would downplay it. If I, even if it was 25 years ago, if I had come up with this, I would be spiking the football so hard, especially now. Um, but, you know, they don't want to give themselves the check mark. So, so yeah, whatever. I feel like they could they could discuss it more. But it has been like 20, 25 years since it, since it was on. Um, <laughs> well, yeah. People yeah. still care about it. And it's also very much discussed. I mean, I obviously am very much in favor of this episode. And I think it works on multiple levels in terms of good queer representation. But there are a lot of people within sort of the the, the queer Trek fan community that would disagree with me and would say that it doesn't work. Yeah. And the outcast as well. Episode, the outcast huh? is hotly debated. Well, like I said, um, maybe we didn't talk about the episode enough. Is there anything that you uh, want to say still about the episode as we come to a close here? Um, hmm. I don't think so. <laughs> I think it's very, ultimately not not to well, not to cut you off, but I think ultimately it's a very uh, simple episode in terms of you know the plot, like what happens. It's no uh, you know tacking into the wind or something like that. But um, but yeah, as as a, as a character drama and seeing these characters you know experience this thing that means one thing in their universe, but means something totally different in ours. Um, I think it's it's really uh, successful in what it tries to do. I think so. I think it's a fantastic episode on so many levels, and like you said, Terry um, Farrell is like at at her peak almost in 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 this episode and in, in showing the complexities of Jazzy's character. And I think yeah. the I think it's to its credit that people still love that relationship so much that like I'll often see in fan discussions when they're talking about like who they wanted Dax to end up with a lot of people are like Khan they, sh they should have brought back Khan <laughs> and uh, <laughs> in my head I mean something I would love to see it would be totally it would be very gratuitous and only for DS9 fans but I would love to see the Trill explored more in the Picard show and other shows that catch up with the Federation decades later but I would also like to see sure. Dax because Dax is still alive in a different in a different oh, host yeah. and i would love something yeah. where it shows dax and khan also in different hosts still in love and being like you know what we're gonna fight this we're gonna <laughs> get go. together i'd love oh, to interesting see that. i think a lot yeah. of people would i wanted to know why so when lenara comes to uh see dax um at this sort of like you know emotional sort of climax uh of the of the episode she's doing sit-ups or something <laughs> like dax is doing, she's doing oh. some kind of yoga i just wondered like why they made that like staging choice. i hate that so much i kind of didn't realize it until i rewatched it again before um doing the podcast i was like why what are they doing the table's in the way so you can't even see her do this yeah it's not it's even so yeah bizarre. avery brooks come on is it just to make her out of breath um or to make her vulnerable yeah. like if, if they did that episode and she was in, or that scene and she was in her full you know science mm. uniform or whatever um but yeah but she's like mm. buttoned down and just seems more vulnerable i guess her hair's down her, the costume and hair choices they made in that scene flawless absolutely gorgeous love it <laughs> well, but that yeah, stage sure. at the beginning very strange <laughs> and all of the direction i think what we haven't talked about is avery brooks and how this was his i believe his first episode that he directed and i think i i love everything he did with it apart from that one little bit which was weird um because i think all a lot of the shots you know when you get you get them close up and then there's a great one when 
um, when they're in the Defiant and they're doing the science thing that is also happening. <laughs> um, and Jadzia goes over to Lenara and they're kind of working on things and they're very close. And then you cut to um, the, you know, the the her brother and the other scientist and they're standing far apart yeah. <laughs> megamind and uh dame's oh, yeah, i think yeah. i've already established <laughs> um and they're standing far apart enough that in the background between the two of them you see jadzia and lenara just get cozier and cozier and i'm like oh that's really that's a fun shot so i think there's lots of little directorial right yeah flourishes. actually something i was gonna say which i forgot to say was megamind and <laughs> what's it? yeah those two um i think they're interesting <laughs> because they operate um as Trill society, they show that no matter how far you go, yeah. you're still caught within the trappings of that society. And they're there to reinforce that societal taboo, even though they've run from it, because they are Trill, it still exists. And I was like, I like that. And we never under, we never find out, I guess it's not important, but we never find out if they're joined or not. Um, mm. Every Trill character who is joined is going to have, going to come with their own baggage mm -hmm. because her brother then is, doesn't share either of her names. So I don't know if like Trill, unjoined Trill have one name and then you take the Trill name and so she's just Lenara Khan, but he does have two names. So is he a different symbiont, yeah. uh, but is biologically her brother? It could be either. And it, it, it doesn't matter. It would have complicated the episode. Like, I'm glad we don't know, but just thinking about like what the relation is, is, is interesting to think yeah. about I mean, statistically well. speaking, he's almost definitely unjoined because there are so few joined. Yeah, right. Um, and they do have a certain. But you think he, then he would let his sister um, do whatever she wants, you know, even though mm. it's a taboo, like he cares about his sister, but he also knows that she's got this symbiote who's got to be wiser than I am. Maybe I don't yeah. know. Oh, I mean, that's, about. that's a fascinating dynamic to explore, which they almost, they kind of touched on with Esri. It's like, if your sibling, especially like a younger sibling, we don't know which is older and which is younger, yeah. but like suddenly becomes this being that is older than you and wiser than you and is actually different personality wise than the, the person you grew up with. That's going to give you a lot of issues. You're going to have a chip on your shoulder. You're going to have resentment. You're going to yeah you're gonna miss the person who used to exist before they came join but like not be able to grieve for them because they're still there it's really complicated and i the things that i liked about esri were the family things um because even though these were characters we'd just been introduced to and we didn't care about i thought that those were interesting concepts to explore so i think and you can kind of see that in the the dynamic between lenar and her brother in that it's contentious like he's trying to control her and possibly as a reaction to the fact that she is now older and wiser than him yeah which like i said it's just crazy like whether he's joined or not like the the fact that the trill cares so much about their joined trill and to sort of put them on a pedestal the fact that he's just like yeah but you can't do that it's like whoa <laughs> come on yeah for completing your second mission for the show uh you'll receive a promotion to the rank of lieutenant junior grade and when you were on before uh you said that you were working in the xeno anthropology department how's that coming along pretty good uh, i've had some some issues with some uh some uh katarians they're trying to take over the federation in a coup again but we managed to to talk them out of it <laughs> The, the Katarians are like the new Orion, I think. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the Orion are just like your go-to. We need some scumbags to do something. Uh, and then, of course, the Katarians, except for uh, Naomi Wildman, like we only ever see uh, Inara Joel try to take over the Enterprise yeah. with a holographic game. <laughs> oh, that's such a weird episode. <laughs> 
Video games, yes. <laughs> so bad for you. Uh, something else that we probably should do a show on someday. But in any case, uh, Lieutenant Tremere, thanks for joining me to talk about Star Trek and the Star Trek universe. If people want to continue the conversation, and they can at EIST Pod on Twitter and the Enterprising Individuals Facebook page, where can people find you online? Uh, I am at Extra Tremereal, um, which is supposed to sound mm. like extraterrestrial, <laughs> but just makes right, me sound right. extra, which is also kind of true. Um, so that's, that's me on Twitter. Um, otherwise... Yeah, I guess that's kind of where I exist. Email me, maybe. Sure. <laughs> send send a mail, a post. <laughs> send her something by post, yes. by royal mail. Um, and I will uh, leave a link to your uh, to your articles on io9 and on Babel as well about the subjects we've talked about today. Yeah, Polari is really, really interesting. And people, if they're interested, should pick up Tom Baker's new book, Fabulosa, uh, because mm. he... He conducted the bulk of the sort of research that means that we can understand Polari now. He um, he wrote he already wrote a dictionary about it, and he did his sort of he did an academic book on it, which was you know it's an academic book, so it was like fifty pounds. But he's now turned it into uh, a regular book to be bought by the public, and it's it's incredible. If you're interested in the history, please please buy it and uh, follow him on the relevant channels. <laughs> well, thanks again for joining me. Thank you very much for having me on board. And we are signing off until the next mission. Hailing frequencies closed.